Since her first message to me in April 2020, I've met Doreen's friend from Carrington Elementary, face-to-face, only once, last June. The day of the Flowers for Doreen event at Johanna Manfreda Fishbein Gazebo in Wallingford was shaping up to be a hot one. We were all wearing masks, so when Lynn showed up carrying a bouquet, I could only see her eyes. I squinted. It's me, Lynn said, and handed me the flowers. You might think that that moment, a meeting between two strangers who had never met, but had come together in the most unusual way, might have felt strange. Instead, it was comforting and familiar, like we'd known each other all along. I knew that feeling. I felt that feeling before. But that didn't mean my mind was able to rest. Lynn's story was too raw, too painful, to think about for a long time. I felt guilty harboring a stranger's secret, even after she made it clear she had entrusted me with it for a reason. I texted Lynn that morning last Labor Day weekend, just a day or two after she clued me into that barn sale at the top of Whirlwind Hill. I was getting into the car to head to the sale with another woman who supports my fight for Doreen, who sorts my papers into binders, who listens to me when I call her at random hours to ply her with facts and theories. About an hour before Lynn beat me there to find those boxes overflowing with proof of someone else's life, I had been struggling to find the right word for how the whole thing made me feel. And the one I kept landing on was simple. The word was sad. My stomach had been flipping like an orca at SeaWorld since the night before, and the coffee I was drinking in the hopes of emboldening myself probably didn't help. I keep putting your story off because I am jealously guarding it, I wrote. I'd been apologizing to Lynn for months, for the fact that my shit-stirring ways had reopened a decades-old wound. Lynn had gone to her mother, haltingly, to prod for memories of Doreen, or Doreen's mother, Donna. Lynn's mom did recall Donna, vaguely, but the women's conversation over coffee, over a dining room table in a room that Lynn couldn't remember, was lost. As to any details about Doreen, or a sleepover, or what might have occurred that night between her daughter and Donna's, Lynn's mother couldn't say. And she really didn't want to talk about it. Why are you stuck on this? she asked. If Lynn were to guess at her mother's hesitation, she thinks, she can't help but recall that her mother was abused when she was very young by someone she should have been able to trust. As the weeks and months passed, it became clearer and clearer that the Wallingford PD was also not eager to delve into what had happened to Lynn. Out of the gate, I'd asked Lynn whether anyone had ever tracked her down, had ever showed up at her door. The question died on my lips. Of course not. Would she be open now, I asked, to speaking to a detective? Lynn was hesitant. If you ever think it would help the actual case for me to talk, or if they approach you after the podcast, let me know, she wrote. I'm fine with taking your lead. I'd rather not talk about it and be made to feel like a fucking crazy person. But if it were to possibly help, then I would do it. Lynn's account of that long-ago night with Doreen will never tell us what happened, that June day in 1988. 
I was convinced, however, that painting the fullest picture possible of a little girl's life could shed some light into why. But every time I brought Lynn up to now Captain Colavolpe, and I did so multiple times, the response was silence. It was like I had said nothing at all. Theories were theories, said the captain. Unless I could give him direct evidence, he wasn't sure how I could help. Undeterred, I sent another email this past July 7th. Mike, the last time we spoke, you told me you did not believe and that the facts did not warrant a look into whether sexual abuse and assault was involved and a motive for this crime. I have further information suggesting Doreen was being molested, which I do not believe you have followed up on. This information is not a theory. This is direct evidence that demands a hard look. When I received no response, Lynn's justifiable wariness about sharing her story with the cops only grew. I definitely have some emotions, she wrote. Do they seem to be poo-pooing the sexual abuse because they are shooting for murder or because they don't think they have anything? I didn't have an answer, and it made me feel shitty, like I was making her dredge these memories up for nothing. Lynn tried to set my worries to rest. You validate my story, she told me. You helped me remember that what happened to me was real. Lynn did have one request. I only ask, she wrote, that you please try to convey that although it obviously is a memory that I felt shame over, I was never mad at Doreen. Even with that memory, I have always thought of her as my friend. I'm glad it's you telling it because you won't make her seem like a predator. I never felt like she preyed on me. We were friends, and she was just trying to make me feel special. As an adult looking back, it just makes me sad for her. She just wanted a friend. She was the victim all along. But she needs people to care and be sweet about her. I don't think she had a lot of that. This past March, Doreen's Aunt Debbie and I took a walk through Huntington State Park. The property is massive, with 1,017 acres spanning three towns in Connecticut's southwest corner. The first is Redding, home to Vincent family friends June, to whose pond Mark took the girls to swim, and soul singer Georgia Lewis. If you're listening to this podcast from out of state or country, or just geographically challenged like me, Redding is the southernmost town of our three about an hour-and-a-half car ride from New York City. The next town to about Huntington is Newtown, where Adam Lanza, mentee to former investigator Richard Novia, murdered 26 at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Finally, there is Bethel, where Doreen's father Mark had grown up and made quite the name for himself. I met Debbie at the parking ride that day and climbed into her car. It was one of those weird Connecticut spring days where the cold and the heat fight for dominance, where one minute it's overcast and the next the sun is driving daggers into your eyes. A lot of people had headed to the park that day too, many of them with their kids. In 2019, when I made my first contact with the WPD, Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo told me cadaver dogs had been all over Huntington. But it soon became apparent that the dogs even over three decades ago, had their work ahead of them. 
Armed with no equipment and some fuzzy details about where we should be looking on the massive property, Debbie and I were no match for the acres and acres of woods. Oh, this is big. This is only one side of it. Right. But he would have been in a spot where he felt most comfortable towards his house, right? I don't know for sure. <clears throat> All of this is very familiar to him. I'm even thinking like over here. Right. Well, if you want to memorialize someone and give them a nice view, right? If you're thinking sentimentally like that. I mean, he could have got out anywhere, drove up here and walked over mm -hmm. there, you know? Well, also when he drove, oh, when there is another lower lot. When the ranger drove away. Oh, you mean for me? Could have fit. When the ranger drove away, he could have gone back anywhere. Yeah. See, no, that's sort of what I pictured, right? See what I mean? How there's like yeah. just a, a wooden barrier there. Yeah. We had to walk to get to the pond. I remember that. Okay. Ready? Yeah. As we walked, Debbie and I engaged in a little bit of gallows humor. You want to go that way, maybe turn that way? Yeah, sure. I'm up if for not, we'll go this way, and I don't. We can do both. Because you could go over that way too. I see them going with the bike. But let's try this. Hi. Oh, yeah. Hi. Been over here. Whoops. I know. I want to tell them why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody can go look. Hey right? guys, you want to help us? <laughs> Debbie and I were looking for carvings, flowers, crosses, maybe even stones. We certainly weren't looking for frogs, wood frogs to be exact, also known as Lithobates sylvaticus. Natives to Alaska and the northeastern United States, these little guys perform quite the little magic trick when surviving icy winters. They burrow under layers of dead leaves in the late fall, and their hearts stop beating and their breathing stops. Let's let a scientist explain. The ferocious cold of this icy forest has frozen these frogs solid, but this frog has a secret. In the spring, it comes back to life. It is survival against all the odds. As temperatures plummet, the frog finds a burrow. Many animals hibernate, escaping the ravages of winter to survive. But the wood frog literally freezes, like a frog-shaped ice cube. It is an extreme adaptation, one that would kill most animals, but not this frog. Their frozen state is a form of hibernation, so things are actually shutting down. Their digestion shuts down, their respiration rate uh, decreases. They actually go into, it's almost like suspended animation. Even the frog's heart stops, sometimes for months, but when spring arrives, the heart starts beating again. A miracle of nature, one science cannot yet explain. So we're talking about a suspended amphibian animation. And when the spring thaw arrives, it sounds something like this, something our fellow park goer rightfully called a symphony. Again, this is what I pictured when I pictured um, someone running past this, because I know there was no gate. 
walk right here. I, I've never walked over here, so I'm not quite sure. <laughs> you can get close to it right down there. It's oh, right there. Okay. Uh, okay. Quite the uh, symphony. Yeah, no kidding. Well, my wife works in nature, so I don't know if they say kind of fog. She was telling me that uh, she's like a wood fog, a tree fog, whatever. Yeah. All, all out now. You can actually freeze them. Really? Over the winter, and then you um, put the uh, antifreeze in them, such create it, and wake up again like in the no. next season. Yeah. Oh God! I should try that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. That's See interesting. You. <laughs> Have a good one. When I think about what Lynn said about wanting people to be sweet to Doreen, I remember the constant glimpses I catch of the ways in which people loved her, and loved her well. Those flashes are many, but buried, frozen in time under a layer of ice and dead leaves, of the pain and suffering she was born into, and lived through, and left behind. I'll never be able to revive Doreen to bring her back to life, but her story matters. For better or for worse, it matters, because Doreen, in her short life, was more than just a victim. She was a daughter a sister, a cousin, a niece, and a friend. She was a wood frog. This is Jessica fritz Aguirre with Season 2, Episode 5, Part 1. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your Hey, Sticky Beaks, it's Jessica. I want to thank you for your patience in waiting for this new episode, Woodfrog, which I am very proud of and which was a bear to release. I'd like to give a shout out to my daughter, Kaylee, who helped pull an overwhelming amount of audio clips so that Joe could produce an amazing show. It's just us. And we are so grateful that you've joined our journey to find justice for Dory. Please check out my page at www.clovercrestmedia.com backslash stickybeak, where you'll also find a selection of great shows. This episode will be in two parts, with the second to be officially released a week from today. If you'd like to get it immediately, please consider supporting me at www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak. I'm asking for a minimum of $5 per month to support me in my long nights spent on this investigation. We plan on stocking the Patreon with a bunch of cool extras, like rants from Joe and the 360-degree video I recently took at Gouveia Vineyards, across the street from the Rollwintel Farmhouse. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Sticky Beak which will help launch the show into the ears and eyes that we need. Finally, if you have any questions or ideas or just want to chat, please get in touch with me at justicefordory at gmail.com. As always, thank you. Here's Season 2, Episode 5 of Woodfrog, Part 1. Over 33 years after she vanished off the face of the earth, it's never been hard to find people who love Doreen and never stopped. Doreen's mother, Donna, and her aunts, Debbie and Carol, are obvious suspects. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak to their first cousin, a woman named Mary, who was born three years before Doreen. 
In the mid-80s, Mary was growing up in Danbury, Connecticut, about a 40-minute drive from Doreen and Donna in Waterbury. So my memories were, like, after church, you know, when she went to church with us, going to breakfast, or when we had picnics on the weekends, and the family was all around, and, you know, they were good memories, like, you know, family gatherings, and we would play hide-and-seek, and we would paint nails together, or we would tear up magazines and we would cut out pictures and make collages and I mean like those kind of things those were my memories of her because there was no facade that she had to put on she well, could just be yourself it was also like in the outward things the music she was allowed to listen to right and the clothes that she was allowed to wear and and the collages we were allowed to make and she was allowed to paint her nails and all the things that were probably forbidden with him In those few years Mary and Doreen had together, Doreen was just a kid, but Mary was too. I asked Mary if she had ever noticed anything about her cousin that put a pit in her stomach. That looked weird. The only thing that that I ever really would have noticed about her was her fascination with Alyssa Milano. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like she kind of maybe had a crush on Tony Danza. Yeah. You know, like the girl crushes, you know, but at our ages, you know, I guess it was kind of common. You know what, though? I made those collages. I remember vividly, like the Teen Beat and Tiger Beat or whatever it was. Uh Yep. And my collage. I mean, I went nuts for those things. She was just, she wanted to be a girly girl. She wanted to paint nails. Like I said, she always had, like, the feathered roach clips, and she liked to do, you know, put her hair to one side, you know, like, pull one side back, and had the feathers in her hair. Yeah, okay. I, you know, I don't think she even realized what the roach clips were for. I didn't, and I, so I don't think she did either. Right, actually, I was going to say, do you mean butterfly clips, but you mean actual, that's hilarious, roach clips. Roach clips, so we would put, <clears throat> put in her hair, because she had the long hair. She'd pull one side back, and then the feathers would just hang. I've seen pictures of her with those feathers at Donna's, like purple. It's... Yeah, purple. That was her favorite color, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because she always liked to wear purple. It strikes me because I always wondered until I kind of was able to pin it down. When he burned her diary and he burned, I think, she had that scrapbook. Uh I think he burned that at the same time. I think about the diary and what burning it means and what that represents. Because I, I think there was probably something in there he didn't want others to see um i'm sure she wrote in it she liked to write she probably journaled because yeah. she liked to write we would draw she would like to write okay she didn't like to draw okay. drawing was not her thing like if we were drawing she would write see i didn't know that about her yeah writing was more her thing than drawing for sure okay mary wasn't really old enough to understand that something bigger was happening around her and her family protected her I was always, my mother was very protective. I was an only child. Mm-hmm. So my mother, I didn't know a lot of what was going on, if that makes sense. I remember, like, Carol and I talked, because I told her I was going to be talking to you tonight. And she goes, remember when your mom just said she wanted Doreen to come live with you guys? Oh. And I said, yeah, I remember that. My mom want you know, Donna's young, and we'll just take Doreen. Because my sister, I was supposed to have a sister, and my sister died at birth. So my mother was like, oh, we would take Doreen. But that wasn't an option, obviously. Yeah. To her, she just, you know, she was protective of me, so I didn't know a lot of what was going on. When I moved down here, I wasn't told that Doreen was missing for a long time. Because they just assumed she was going to show back up. 
1986, when Mary was 13 and Doreen was 10, Mary's family moved to Florida. When Doreen disappeared two years later, Mary didn't find out about it right away, as her mother protected her from the news. But once Mary realized her cousin was gone, it was clear how wounded her family was and how they would do anything to get Doreen back. But I feel like your family did a lot. I mean, there were rewards and they were in the paper all the time. Hired investigators. They would have done anything. Of they course. really would have. And, and then those older ones that would never speak to you because they're old school generation. They were the ones that turned, you know, the 80 year olds. They were the ones that just turned to the church and prayed and did novenas. And yeah. they, the, the private ones that don't believe in, you know, publicizing your business. Like my uncle that took the trip over to the Vatican and, and lit candles for her and just, you know, like those kind of things. Like that was their answer to everything. That was their answer to everything. That phrase got stuck in my head. Putting the finishing touches on this particular chapter, I noticed a post on the Sticky Beaks Facebook group. In response to the description I'd written for the last episode, Little Alice. Join Jessica Fritz Aguirre, it read, as she attempts to build a truce with the Wallingford Police Department, examining the impact of the department's recent change in leadership on the investigation, as well as its apparent unwillingness to examine the relevance of sexual abuse to Dorian's case. The listener commented, You seem to suggest hope for teamwork in the first part of your statement, which is immediately followed by criticism. Seems counterproductive. Is there a chance the WPD knows something you do not and the sexual abuse angle is invalid? Honest question. Not trying to be a wise ass. So let's be blunt. I really think there is a lot the PD doesn't know and maybe doesn't want to find out. Sometimes I wish I could take a blast back to the past, back to the future style, to that day in July 1989, when private investigator Kingsley finally convinced the police to converge on that farmhouse on the hill. I wish I could watch when, over a year after Doreen had vanished, Officer Ed D'Onofrio had admitted he had assumed Doreen was just a little slut, and Kingsley had jacked him up against the wall. In the movies, moves like that set things right on course to a rosier future. Remember when George McFly punches Biff Tannen out in that 1955 enchantment under the sea parking lot? George's son Marty returns to a 1985 where his parents golf, where his dad gives his mom a loving pat on the ass, where the truck Marty has always dreamed of sits waiting in the garage. But here, in Doreen's case, Where's the truck? The truck, with its tow hook and homemade toolbox and the long black hairs in the bed. Lost in time, I guess. And there's no garage. Jimmy Farnham and Laura West tore it down the October after Doreen vanished. We do have Doreen's denim jacket, left hanging in a closet at 1316 Whirlwind Hill, only to be secreted away by Sharon. Once the police finally got their hands on it, they just passed it on, giving it back to Donna in a year she can't remember. It hangs, well-preserved, in her own closet, still bearing the evidence tag. Pieces of direct evidence like the jacket, the pieces that Captain Colavolpe wants, are few and far between. 
Circumstantial evidence abides, tunneling down into people's hearts and brains and souls and making a home there. The trick is recognizing its value and digging it out. Just because a story isn't logged in an evidence book somewhere doesn't make it any less true. In February 2020, Connecticut's legislature finally eradicated the statute of limitations on sexual abuse and assault cases where the victims had been under 18 at the time of the crime. Connecticut had a lot of amazing women on the ground to thank for that achievement. When the law passes, there are going to be a lot of predators that we're going to know about, Beth McCabe told Ella Goldblum of the Yale News. Beth headed up the Connecticut chapter of SNAP, or the Survivors Network, of those abused by priests. Another SNAP member, Lori Temple, told Goldblum, The Archdiocese of Hartford released a list of credibly accused priests. I was sitting at work and it just popped up and honest to God, it just triggered memories that I hadn't thought of for years. My perpetrator's name wasn't on the list, so I called the Archdiocese saying, You made a mistake. You left someone off the list. And as you can imagine, that was not a good experience. The women throughout Doreen's story have never had a good experience. A fair shake. Their perpetrators, their demons, have somehow been allowed to pretend like nothing's happened. Let's start with Debbie and Carol, whose accounts have always been treated as alleged because they never made them officially known. On our walk through Huntington, Debbie led me to a large body of water in the park that I now know is Lake Hopewell. As you walk along a trail directly facing the lake, the road splits, veering off about 45 degrees to the left and 45 degrees to the right. If you take the path to the right, you'll see a small dam. That dam didn't exist on the day that Mark's family gathered to spread his father George's ashes in Lake Hopewell, after George died on October 6, 1998, when Mark suddenly walked away, silently and alone, into the woods. For now, let's head to the left, where there is a small bridge for fishing. That and the dam where the Vincent family said their goodbyes to George are almost within spitting distances of each other. So this is the pond? Yeah, you see the bridge over there? Yeah. That's where we used to go fishing off and on the side. Okay. Now, is he messing with you guys when you guys were fishing? Or was that just another part of the day? That was in the beginning when they first started going out. Okay. When that really started, that was like, uh, I am trying to remember if it happened in Bethel. It did not. When we moved to New Fairfield is where, but I do not remember doing all this to get there. He knew a better way. Of course he did. I don't know it. Of course he did. Debbie and I lingered on the bridge for a while, and she told me about the days when she finally found the guts to tell someone what was happening to her. Because my parents always made light of things, you know what I mean? Not light of it, but they didn't make a big deal about it. Nobody turned in sexual abuse back then. I told them. And I remember her not believing me. Yeah. And I remember um, the whole thing. I remember Donna coming in and saying, yes, you did. And uh, he's a liar or something. Is that when he tried to make you lie about it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Afterward, he uh, 
But I only told um, when when they were broken up, you know. Did you feel safer that way? Yeah, because, you know, I was only like, you know, maybe... It's like her age. I might have been 13, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we were only in New Fairfield for a year. I moved from Bethel at 11, so that was around 12, and I told at 13 because they were separated. What did um, what'd your dad do? Anything? Um, yeah, there was a couple of different instances I, I remember. My mother said that I was I was a liar. She's a pathological liar. And I can't, I don't know, my father, I don't know if I told him, I told him both. And I, I don't know. Nothing, I guess nothing, I don't know. You didn't, you didn't really, I don't know if you didn't say anything, I don't know. So, yeah, and, and Carol never really knew. <clears throat> well, you know what? Wait a minute. I take that back. It was, it was, it was here in Bethel. No, wait. Carol was before that because she said hers was started in the, in the... In June's house. June's house, yeah. Yeah. In the, in the changing room. She had changing rooms that went up to her pool. Well, it really struck me because I think the first time you and I started talking about it, it was like, you know, your experience, and I think Carol had been quieter about hers. And then I played that interview a few times now, just to re-listen to it. And she, you know, you're talking about your experience, and then she keeps, it's like she keeps trying to get hers in a little bit, and then people are like, wait, what are you talking about, you know? June's house, what's this? And she, he had changing rooms. There was changing rooms, and we'd go swimming there. But then we must have gone somewhere else to go swimming, too, because how did he catch her alone? You know he, what I mean? She went back to go get something. And then I think he kind of took advantage of, you know, yeah. her. He never said anything. So hers actually started in Bethel. So he likes her about 12 years old. Yes. But then he, you know, when I, we moved to New Fairfield, uh, that's when he, you know, was in the bedroom. But he never really, you know, like, he never really got me to do anything. Right. Because I was like, get away from me, you know? Yeah, no kidding. I knew it was him. And he knew I knew it was him. Oh, and that's why he won't talk about that one. He never, ever brings it up. <laughs> I wouldn't either. <laughs> I wouldn't either. Here's Carol on telling her mother about what Mark had done. He told my mother eventually. It was like, Ma, he keeps coming, you know, he keeps coming in the room, you know? Right. Now, did he ever... What do you mean? And of course, back then, they just kind of dismissed it. I was married, she's pregnant. She, you know, it was kind of a, something you just dismissed, I guess. I don't know. Well, you know, for me, it would have been a big thing, but back then, it was like something you kind of swept under the carpet. You know, it'll go away, it'll go away. And last but not least, here's Donna, Debbie, and Carol's mother, Jane. How did you, um, how did you and your husband find out about what he was doing with Debbie and Carol? They told us one day. Okay. They told, I, I don't know if my husband knew. I, I still, I don't know if he knew that or not. Because I think he would have reacted a lot differently. Had he known, I think she just, she just said it to me. And then, and I had said something. Then they denied it. So I didn't know whether to believe it or not. Right. But then Donna asked Debbie after I wasn't there. Did it really happen? And she said, yes. And that's when Donna, that's when Donna decided to leave him. She, she didn't want no part of him. 
I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Doreen went to live with her grandparents, who had relocated from Connecticut to Florida, when she was in elementary school. The span of years aren't clear, but her Aunt Debbie remembers that Doreen was in the wedding when she married her ex-husband, Mike. And after having struggled with her daughter's reports of sexual abuse, Doreen's Grandma Jane was paralyzed in the face of what she saw in Doreen. She couldn't even wear a bathing suit. So Donna and the and her sisters were telling me a little bit about, you know, that Doreen would want to swim at your house, but she would want to swim naked too, right? Right. Right. But she did do it. Yeah. She did do it. She did. And, you know, my husband, well, when he was alive, I think he almost, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. You know, he said, you know, get some clothes on. But she, she couldn't, he, he, because he was worried about her getting, he knew if she wasn't fully dressed and she had a tan, this is what it was, if she had a tan, he would have known she wasn't dressed. Who, Mark? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's that's him. That's what she said to me. If I get a tan, he gonna know that I I wore a bathing suit. So she said. So that's maybe that's why she took everything off. So she got everything, you know, all tan everywhere. You know, it was the only thing. That was um, the only thing I could think of why you would do it. She said that to you. If I get a tan, he'll know. No, no. She said that to me. Doreen said that to you. Yeah, Doreen said that to me. If I get if I get a sunburn, you know, I get tan. You gonna know, especially like a bathing suit on. You know, you get a bathing suit on. Yeah. If you have your bathing suit on, you can, you know, you can tell the difference. So she's not allowed, so that's her, her excuse for going swimming naked then? Yeah, it's like, that's her, and I thought, well, I thought that was awfully <clears throat> strange. I says, well, what's wrong with her? You're supposed to wear a bathing suit when you go in the pool. And she just, she ignored that. She goes, well, I, I, I got to get it, if I get a tan, I got to get it all over. I go, oh, okay. I go, oh, I couldn't figure out why. Of course, now I know why. But I couldn't figure it out then. It didn't make any sense to me. She used to play with the kids next door. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even like her. They did not like her when I lived in Florida. There was two little boys. I don't know if there was a girl or not. I think there might have been. I'm not sure. They didn't like her. But when she played, it wasn't like, I don't know. She, it was like spiteful things that she would do, and they didn't like her. Were they, um, do you remember how old they were? Were they about her age? One was, and the other one was younger. Okay. Yeah, one was about her age, and the other one was a little younger. Would they play with your son at all? No, my son was older. Okay. And Jane's stories would get more troubling. She was very much sexually active, I can tell you right now. Doreen was? Yes. What do you mean? She was sexually active, you know, at an early age. Like having sex with people? She had sex with the boy next door that lived next door to us in Florida. She did. That's so... You didn't know that, did you? No, I didn't. Okay, she did. And the kid hated her after that. He hated her because she knew everything what to do. Now, how would she know what to do if she wasn't shown and taught? Right. about it. Of course. Of course. So that's how I sort of put things together, how she knew what to do with this kid. Because this kid was ignorant. He knew nothing about sex. I think he was only... 10, 10 okay. years old. Okay. In other words, she, she seduced him. At her age, she just did, she did that. Can you imagine? Well, I think she was seeking it out. You know what I mean? Actually, absolutely. Yeah, she was lashing out. I understand. Now I do, but I didn't then, you know. I didn't know about that until later. How'd you find that out? Uh, somebody told me, and I can't recall who it was. I know 
was my son. Okay. That told me she must have said something to him. Okay. I think she said it to him. I'm not positive. Don't hold me to that. Okay. I'm not sure, but I did find out about it. Okay. And he he wanted no part of playing with her anymore. He hated her because I don't know. He just I guess and they were they were strict Catholics. Yeah. You know, and that kind of I guess that kind of hurt his pride or whatever. Yeah, I think it's embarrassing, right? If a girl and he was he was he was mortified. I guess he was really. I guess he was embarrassed. He didn't want, he didn't want to play with her. He wouldn't even come over. He would not play with her at all. But the younger one would come over. He'd be fine. Of course, I didn't know. I had no clue. I mean, you go outside and play with the kids. You know, you don't think they're gonna do something like that. Yeah. That age. No. No. Well, that's the other thing. Like, how old do you think Doreen was her at the, when she did that? She eight or nine. Eight or young. eight or nine. Okay. Yeah, she was living with me then. So I don't think they, they, do you think they had sex? She probably couldn't have had sex with him, but you're saying like, did sex, go ahead. I don't know how far, I don't know exactly how far, well, how it all materialized. I really don't know, because I wasn't there, but he didn't want no part of her again, you know. Yeah. I guess he didn't like the idea of it, you know, he, he was embarrassed. I guess he was embarrassed and he didn't want to deal with her. Yeah. Was that his brother, the other kid? Yeah, it was his brother. Okay. Do you know their names at all? Do you remember their names? Not really, no. Okay. They moved soon after. They didn't stay there. Okay. Let's pause for a second so I can introduce you to Joe Murad. Joe is Grandma Jane's son, making him brother to Donna, Debbie, and Carol, and Doreen's maternal uncle. He's the fourth of four kids, the only boy in a set that spans 11 years, and quite the character. Back in the mid-80s, Joe was in his early teens when his parents took them to Florida. These days, Joe lives quite the globe-trotting lifestyle. Trying to fill out this shit to get into the um, country of uh, the Dominican. It's, they're making it very hard. <laughs> you just hanging out with your mom? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um... I just been doing uh, the mom thing for the last three or four weeks, and then I go to Dominican for five or six weeks. Oh, wow. there. I don't know. I bought an open-ended ticket, and then uh, back to Colorado for work. <laughs> what do you do? Just hang out? Just like relax? When I go there? Yeah. Go to Dominican? Yeah. A lot of drinking and partying and uh, womanizing and all that <laughs> stuff. You know? But a lot of you know going to see uh, you know like. Um, Various different parts of the Dominican, like, you know, museums and, you know, beautiful sites, things like that. That sounds good. Did yeah, you, it's a good time. Did I do you, it all the time. I usually go to Asia for this time, but I, they didn't want to let us in. Right, yeah. No, I knew you traveled a lot. And what do you, when you, when you work in Colorado, what are you doing in Colorado? Uh, I do a lot of things. I cook people fondue in their houses. I, um, I, um, I'm a bellman and I dr- I'm a limo driver for myself. I bought a couple cars and I got a, a buddy of mine working it. And I'm a landlord for uh, own like two or three houses. Uh, I owned three, but now I own two only. See, that's uh, why you can, a bunch of people. That's why you can do all this stuff, right? Yeah, it's been good. I've had them plows for like 17 years now. Oh, that's great. Back as a teenager in Florida, Joe was celebrating getting away miles from his sisters and their drama when Dorian crashed back into his life. Dorian's father, Mark, was in prison for one of his assorted convictions, and her mother, Donna, needed a break. This did not make Joe a happy camper. Dorian had been a pain in the ass, he told me, taking up attention that he felt was rightfully his. 
Do you remember how long she was with you guys? I would say a couple of years, maybe a year and a half. She went to like a couple different little schools out there, Morningside Elementary. I remember her going there. Yeah. And then, uh, and, and then she went to another school. Uh, and I remember actually teaching her how to read, ride a bike as a kid. I think she felt a little bit alone when she was with us. But when she went to school, she made her own friends, you know? Yeah. It was a whole different grade, you know? She had her own friends here. She would have friends over to the house with my mother. I remember she was really terrible at, like, math and stuff, and my dad would be on her ass about <laughs> unlearning it and stuff like that, but she just couldn't get it. <laughs> yeah. But she was, I mean, it, she strikes me as being super smart otherwise. I think on certain things, not book smart so much. At, at that age, she might have gotten better as she got older. And I did get some insight on what Joe thought of Doreen and the neighborhood boys. You know, she was super sexualized. I hate to say that, but she was. I don't know. I mean, just from what you guys have told me, yeah. But uh, I don't know how you know that for sure. Well, your mom did tell me about those two boys that lived. Um, were they neighbors? Yeah, I don't believe that, though. You think that's, that's just my opinion, but I don't believe that. You think that's bullshit? Uh, yeah. Well, where would your mom hear something like that, though? Not from Doreen. I don't know where she would hear it from. That's kind of my the reasoning in my saying I don't believe it. <laughs> right. Were you close to those guys? No, I don't even. I looked. I tried to look them up on Facebook, to be honest with you, and I couldn't find them. I, I was trying to, you know, because I want to ask them the same thing. Mm-hmm. I couldn't dig them guys up. Do you? sister named... Do you remember that happening back then? Do you remember your mom saying something about that back then, or is this all new to you? It's kind of new to me, but I do remember, you know, we played the kissy-kissy game, maybe something like that. That might have happened, but I don't believe sex happened. Right. Way too young. Doreen, I, Doreen, I don't remember what shit like that. I don't remember that shit going on. I remember we used to go, go fishing together. They didn't hang out that much together, all them. And I believe the reason why they hated her, like my mother said, is because... I kind of hated her, so I was like the leader of them, too. They were two younger kids than me. And you hated her because she... I didn't hate her. I shouldn't say No, I... We did have some good times together and stuff like that. I just, you know, she was like a pain in the ass coming in and, you know, I think she took my bedroom and, you know, shit like <laughs> that, you know? That was a selfish moment. Well, so she... I hate her. I loved her in certain ways, but I, I think, you know what I mean? I loved her like a sister. I treated her like a sister. And sometimes I'd be on her side, sometimes I wouldn't be on her side. And yeah, I was a leader of the whole deal, you know what I mean? With her, I was, uh, you know, the older kid. So she wanted to always follow, and I didn't want her around because she was a pain in the ass. That's pretty much, you know, was the story. I was going into high school, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And she was um, in grade school, you know? We weren't tight. Well, and we've talked before about how you felt guilty, and I understand why you feel that way, but at the same time, you were like a child. Yeah, I was still young enough to just be very selfish and about me. And you know what, I, I, don't, like, I don't feel guilty about it so much now, because I think that me and Doreen would have been friends now. You know what I mean? I think that, you know, I do miss her, because I think that... Uh, we would have probably been like, ah, that was kid shit. You know what I mean? I have a million kids, you know, young kids. I was like a little bit of a bully in high school, you know what I mean? And it's, you know, I feel guilty about it. But, like, we've become friends on Facebook, and I've apologized and things like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
and I just said, I was an asshole in high school. I even just did it recently to a freaking eighth grade, uh, ninth grade teacher. <laughs> how crazy, how, you know, I did. I, I got on Facebook and apologized to her, like, wrote her a long page. Uh, she thought it was cool that I did. Yeah. Um, for, forgive it. Forgive for kid shit, you know what I mean? We talked before about what a pain in the ass she is. And you know what? To be completely honest with you, Debbie has said the same thing to me. Like, Doreen was very headstrong. She was a bit of a pain in the ass, but, you know, I was just as bad. You know, we butted heads. Uh, right. But Doreen butted heads was a lot. But, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the kids. I wanted Joe to tell me more about Doreen, about his niece that was more like a little sister, as a person, as a kid. At first... He was a little reluctant to share, out of his gut feeling that what he had to say wouldn't help solve the ultimate puzzle. I see what you're doing. Are you just paint a picture of the, the little kid, and uh, you're painting a story of what's going on. You're talking to me. I'm pretty confident that you're not going to find out anything more through me. Well, I just feel like it's fair to Doreen to paint a picture of who she was as a person, right? So, like, kind of a pain in the ass. But you also, like, taught her how to ride a bike. Yeah. Yeah. But I pushed. And when I pushed, something beautiful happened. And I remember actually teaching her how to re- ride a bike as a kid. First she had training wheels, and then now we, she had the training wheels forever. And the, one day I, would, uh, I just we took them off, and she just kind of went. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You remember that. You're not going to crack the case. Mary's not going to crack the case. Debbie's not going to crack the case. I'm not. But, like, I feel like it's important for people to know that Doreen wasn't just a victim. You know, she had such a short life to live. She was 12. And so the story about you teaching her to ride with without training wheels is huge because nobody knows that story. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, we used to run with her with the with the bike for a little bit, and then she'd get it, you know, that type of stuff. You know, we used to go net and fish all day in the backyard uh, in uh, Port St. Lucie, and net, net like, uh, we'd net like little baby fish to catch larger fish. Mm-hmm. That we would spend tons of time back there. That's kind of when we did get along. I remember her catching a snake in the net and freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like a long net, you know? She happened to catch a snake in the net, and uh, she's running with it in her hand. Uh, but, uh, she's screaming like it was gross. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, this, I don't know. Is there anything else? Oh, I remember how she couldn't uh, drive the lawnmower for shit. She ran into the, uh, <laughs> into the garage wall. Yeah, these are little things I remember. These stories are stunning in their simplicity, their normalcy. They were exactly the kind that I had asked Joe to tell me. But always lingering in the background was the sadness of it all. I felt terrible about her being lost then, you know. felt very guilty about the life that we had together because, you know, she kind of left. And I think I, I might have been part of the reason why she got sent away, you know what I mean? I, you know, because we just didn't get along. You mean sent away back to Donna? Back to her mother and, and, and ultimately her father. Okay. Very sad, you know, now that I think about it, that, you know. A yeah. girl growing up, you know what I mean? That's all it was. Very sad that she has to go through this. Had to go through the shit that was going behind closed doors with that fucking monster of a man. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children.
Mosquito.